all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "Um, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him, and he said to his son, oh, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened fattened calf and let's kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Really well read. Exceptional. (laughs) For those who don't know, I haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name's Jake, and that's my wife, Krista. And uh, uh, it's so good to be here with you all this morning and to uh, be able to continue the series that we started a couple weeks ago that we're calling uh, The Gospel and Community. It's an incredibly creative title, don't you think? The Gospel and Community. But we're, we're calling it that because we really are examining about what kind of impact does the gospel have on community. Now, the gospel, let me define some terms here. The, do, the gospel is like the essence of the Christian faith. It's, it's like the cornerstone that all Christianity is built on. It's the most important thing. Without the gospel, Christianity just falls apart. And basically, the gospel is summed up in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, who we know is Jesus Christ, who came to earth, lived the perfect life that we all failed to live, died on the cross for the death that we all deserve to die because of our sins, and then rose again three days later. And the verse continues to say that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Like, that's, that's the gospel message. And usually when we think about the gospel... We think about what it does with uh, a key relationship, the relationship between us and God. And when we think about it, though, very individual terms, we think about it like, I believe the gospel that helps me be right with God, that reconciles me to God or restores me to God. And that's certainly true. But oftentimes, especially in our Western mindset, when we're so individualistic in how we think about everything, we miss the fact that the gospel also has profound ramifications, not just in my relationship with God, but also in how I would relate to others as well. And that's what we're looking at with this study, especially as a new church. We say, okay, we're forming a new community here. What will, what will inform how we are to treat one another? And what will empower us to treat each other that way? How can we actually be the community that God wants us to be? And what does even that community look like? And the answer to all those questions is really found in the gospel. And so we're saying, let's, let's see how the gospel should shape and let's allow it to shape this community 
in that way. And so that's kind of what we're, we're studying. Now, it's interesting is that there are a lot of enemies to the God, I mean, to the commu- to community, to the type of community that we want, to strong relationships and deep friendships and really being authentically known and loved by people. Like we know that that stuff is hard to come by. And sometimes even with your best of friends, there are things that creep in that cause, that pull you apart or cause things not to be as, as strong and as deep and as loving and caring as you want. And like there's tons of enemies to community. Again, the gospel, what we'll find, has just prof- profound things to say and profound help to offer in overcoming the enemies to community. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking at Luke 15. And uh, we, Adam started us off in that ser- uh, this series two, year, two weeks ago, and uh, not two years ago yet, two weeks ago, and uh, looking at a couple of stories that Jesus tells to the Pharisees who are grumbling, who are complaining, murmuring about Jesus spending time with sinners. And, and so the Pharisees are not happy with who Jesus is actually spending time with and the, the kind of community that he's building. And so they begin judging him, and, and Jesus responds. He tells three stories. The, the last story is the most famous story that he tells, and it's one that Krista just read. It's the story of the prodigal son. And last week we began looking at that story, and for the next three weeks, including today, we're going to continue to dive down deep into this story because it's really amazing how rich it is, how much we can learn from what Jesus was getting at when he's telling the Pharisees this story about what community and a gospel-shaped community really can be. And so that's what we're doing. We'll see if we get worn out by this parable, but I think it's one of the most beautiful ones in all of Scripture. And so I'm really excited that we get to spend so much time looking at this. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on how the relationship with, between the younger son and the father began to become uh, be, began to be reconciled. So last week we really looked at how things really fell apart within the family. So there was this assault on community. The, the son uh, demanded the, the father would give him his share of the inheritance before the father died. If you remembered talk, me talking about that last week, saying that's the equivalent of the son actually wishing the father dead. Saying like, all I want is your stuff. I wish you'd hurry up and die so I could have your stuff. So the father in grace actually gives the son his portion of inheritance before he even dies. The son takes it and he runs off. And so you see this just unraveling of the most basic sense of human community, that of the family. Today, we're seeing what happens to bring reconciliation to that family. And so we're focusing on the son actually coming back to back home. And what we see is that the key element, if you will, that begins reconciliation between the younger son and the father is repentance. Now, repentance is a very you know, common Christian church word. And some of us, when we hear repentance, and like we're talking about repentance on the same morning, I think like we kind of cringe at that, right? Because it's like, it's, you know. But it's interesting to, to, to think about why we cringe at that. Because what I want to do this morning is talk about why the Bible puts such an important stress on repentance. And then I want to talk about what it is, and then what the key to it is. And then what kind of community we would be if we were a repentant community. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Uh, hopefully that gauges, you know, kind of it's like enough interest there for you to like try to stay awake through, through the message. And we'll, we'll have some fun with it. Let's, so let's begin with why is it important? What's, why is repentance important? 
In this story, if you just think about the story, what is the very first thing that's the trigger, if you will, that actually begins to bring reconciliation to the family? Is it not when the son realizes that he's messed up and that decides to come back to the father and, you know, he rehearses the speech, like, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against, sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Like, he begins to rehearse his repentance speech. But isn't that what starts to bring reconciliation in the family? Jesus, on his ministry on earth, he, he consistently stressed the importance of repentance. If you read through the Gospels, you see the phrases used over and over again, like, repent and believe, or repent for the kingdom of God is near, or, re, or repent to enter and enter into the kingdom. And basically what he's saying is, is that it, it all begins with repentance. In fact, Jesus is saying that, like, I don't have anything to offer you that doesn't come first through you repenting. Like you can't be with me. You can't be in my kingdom without first beginning with repentance. Repentance is incredibly crucial. It's incredibly important. I've heard this analogy used that repentance is basically the fuse to the dynamite of God's love, which is so weird, right? It's like it's a horrible analogy, but I'm using it anyways. But, uh, but if, if, to get God's love to actually explode into our lives, to actually fully, fully experience God's love for us, the way to it, the fuse to it is through repentance. Repentance is the fuse that explodes God's love in our life. So, but here's the thing. Repentance is, is not a word that we, or even more than just a word. It's not, it's not something that we like to do much of. It's, it's seen oftentimes as something that... Uh, we want to avoid, we want to be an anomaly to our life, we don't want to be someone that has to repent. But yet, uh, I was reading and studying this this, this, uh, this week, and I found it really interesting that, you know, when Martin Luther actually nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door, and he started the Protestant Reformation. And he's, this is basically 95 things that he thinks needs to, needs to change about the Catholic Church at the time for it to align better with biblical understanding. You know what the very first of the 95 theses were? Is this. I think I got it up here, but it's that he says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Like that's how he begins all of it. And isn't that interesting? I'm basically saying all of life should be repentance. And, th- and this is what Luther is saying when he looks at the Bible, this is what he gets to. It seems like it's so important that all of life should really be uh, uh, spent in repentance. And again, this is different than how we normally think. We usually think repentance is a sign of weakness, don't we? Like you have to admit that you've done something wrong. Are you having to, to say like... I, you know, I'm not as good as I ought to be. To, to, to admit that is a sign of weakness. Luther, the Bible, would seem to say that it's opposite of that, that it's actually a sign of strength. That if you're able to, you feel loved enough, you feel confident enough to be able to admit that you've done something wrong, that's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of strength. But there's two different ways to view that, right? Oftentimes in, uh, today we, we think about uh, uh, repentance being an experience of, of losing face or disempowerment. But it seems like from the Bible when we read it that, that repentance is actually uh, something that brings about freedom and it's an experience of freedom. 
that we say we don't, world kind of common thinking of the day says we don't want to repent because if we do, then we're having to, like, <laughs> we lose our, 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 our leverage to say that I'm a good person or I've done, like, you should listen to me or you should respect me. We lose faith when we have to repent and say that I'm sorry and I messed up. But the Bible says, man, there's actually a lot of freedom in that. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to win every argument. You can admit when you do something wrong and, and, and feel confident yet still enough to do that. And so there's this freedom, this, this liberating joy that comes by being able to repent. And Luther would say, if that's true, if repentance is really not a sign of weakness but a strength and it doesn't lead to disempowerment or, or losing face but actually leads to freedom, then it should be something that happens all the time. Where the world would say, no, it's something that you should try to avoid all the time. You should never, like, it's the last ditch effort to have to actually repent. Just, you know, make it work. What's, what's right? Who's right? Common, day, common thinking or, or the Bible? <laughs> now, what's interesting is that I would actually say they're both right. And the reason I would say they're both right is because there are two different types of repentance. And that's what I want to get into now is just to talk about like what is biblical repentance? Because even the Bible defines that there are two different types of repentance. In 2 Corinthians uh, 7, I think I've got that up here. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so this seems to imply, or, or more than imply, I think it says it very clearly, there, there are two types of repentance. There's two types. One that's motivated out of this godly grief, and that leads to life. It leads to salvation. This is a good thing. This is liberating. This is a sign of strength that's found. Strength is found. Confidence is found. Hope is found. Love, joy found here. And there's a type of grief, a, a worldly grief, that leads, that leads to repentance that actually leads to, to death. Lack of power, disempowerment, it's a sign of weakness, all of that stuff. It seems like there really are two different types of repentance. And so what is biblical godly repentance? It seems like it'd be worth knowing. How do I go about this that leads to life as opposed in a way that leads to death? And the first thing we see from this story is that uh, the, the son, she has... Uh, three things that he does that are just spot on and what the Bible says is biblical repentance. And we can really learn from these three things. The first thing that we see is that it begins with coming to your senses. Coming to your senses. Like in verse 17, it says this, But when he came to himself, or other translations say, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now, this is, this is really interesting to me, that repentance literally just means changing your mind. That's what it like, literally means, changing your mind. But we don't just change our own mind about things, do we? Not about big things, not about things like what's right or wrong or what's purpose of life or like how to live. Like 
Like, is there a God or is there not a God? Like, big things like that, we don't just change our mind. It takes something to change our mind. It takes something outside ourselves to do that. When Jesus says that he came to his senses or he came to himself, it's saying that there was something for this son that that actually brought about the repentance that happened that uh, outside of himself that woke himself up. Like, you don't wake yourself up from a trance, do you? No, like something has to wake you, wake you up from trance. The snapping of a finger or whatever it might be. But someone has to do that to wake you up. Well, repentance is that, that way. Like here, think about this. The sin in our life that's the most destructive to us and the people around us are the sins that we don't see. They're the blind spots that we have or the things that we're in denial about. And by definition, it's because we don't see them or that we deny that they're there. That's why they're so destructive. Because there's something wrong, but we don't even try to curb it because we don't even acknowledge that it's there. And the only way we'll actually see it or feel that is if something wakes us up, something brings us to our senses. And so with the son, he finds himself feeding pigs and starving to death. And as an Israelite, as a, as a Jewish son, like that's like as low as it gets. I mean, pigs were a filthy animal, right? They didn't have anything to do with them, and yet he's in the sty with them, feeding them, and wishing he could eat their food. And all of a sudden, something clicks. White bulb goes on. See, oftentimes, the way that God has set up the world to work is that he's designed it in a way that when we are in sin or we're making bad decisions, whatever you want to call it, there's consequences to it. And God has designed relationships to work best by putting each other's interests ahead of our own. Or God's made relationships be founded on trust. And if you're just a consistent liar, like either you're selfish or a liar, two examples here, that relationships will begin to crumble and they'll break around you. And you'll begin to feel this incredible pain as a result. And in that pain of the loss of these relationships, you wake up. And you think to yourself, what have I been doing? Like, what's been going on? Why have I been thinking that way? Why have I been acting that way? And all of a sudden, you've come to your senses. Like, that's what happens with this son in the story. He's feeding the pigs. He comes to his senses. That's where repentance begins. And when you come to your senses, you have to act on it. See, it's not something that you can bring about on your own. It's not on your own timeline. It's not you set it up. I'm going to repent at this time about this. It's, it, something wakes you up. But when you wake up, our responsibility is to act, to do something about it. And that's what you see the son do, is that he um, goes to the father, gets up, and he heads out. And he starts rehearsing his speech. And in it, when, when he uh, comes to, to his father, his father runs out to greet him. What's he say? Well, he says it just right. <laughs> See, he actually begins by saying, I have sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. Now, isn't it interesting to note that he begins by saying that he sinned against heaven? Like, you ever read that and wondered, like, why, why would he say that? Like, Certainly, he sinned against his father. Like he's really defaced 
his father in, in the eyes of that community. He's really shamed his father. He's really hurt his father personally, relationally. He's hurt his father econo- economically. He's hurt his brother. He's kind of torn down this family. But like, why would he begin by saying, oh, I've sinned against heaven? Here's why. Because God has created all of us for a purpose. He created us for, for lots of good things, but ultimately you can boil it down to he created us to, to represent him. That we were made in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says. And that the way that we live was supposed to give all of creation a picture of what he's like. That he's a loving God, so we're to be loving people. That he, he puts others first. He puts the son, puts the father first, and the son puts the spirit first, and all that, like we talked about last week. And we are to put others first as a result. And that he's an honest God. So we're to be honest people, and on and on and on. That the way we live is supposed to give the, father, give the onlooking world a picture of what God is like. And any time that we sin, any time we do anything that God would not do, Or we fail to do something that God would do. We first and foremost sin against God. We slander his name. We drag his name through the mud. When David sinned, King David, and uh, you read the Old Testament, he was one of the great heroes of the faith, but if you're familiar with this story, he messes up big time. And King David and it's supposed to be out on war, out war with his troops, and so he holds back, and then he sees a woman bathing on her on, on, on the build, top of the building, and he summons her. She's already married, but he and he is too. But he commits adultery with her, and then he gets her pregnant. And to hide it, he actually has her husband, who is off at war, killed. And like that's about as dark as it gets, isn't it? And yet, in Psalm fifty-one which is the the psalm in which you see David confessing from his sins. This is what he says. He says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you think, like, what in the world, David? Like, uh, did you forget about Bathsheba, the girl that you, you know, had an affair with and got pregnant and killed her husband? Did you you forget about her husband? (laughs) Like, what, like... He says, against you first, God, you of sin. And guys, that's, that's where it begins. And here's why this is so powerful, why this is so important, that, that repentance would, after coming to your senses, what you would go with it is vertically first, repenting in front of God. It's because, there, again, there are two types of repentance. And there's this worldly sorrow that really boils down to sorrow and grief over the consequences of your sin. And then there's godly sorrow that really boils down to sorrow and grief over how you have wronged God and others. And there's a big difference there, isn't there? Because who are you feeling sorrow for in this first one, the worldly sorrow? Aren't you just simply feeling sorrow for, sorrow for yourself? I've messed up. I've been caught or I'm experiencing the consequences of my pain and I'm sorrowful over the pain I'm experiencing. I don't like that I'm experiencing pain. I don't care about who I've hurt. What I care about is how, how I've hurt me. 
And that, guys, if our sin is primarily motivated out of self-centeredness, then that kind of grief is only further self-centeredness. And it leads to no kind of change. It leads to death. Okay, this is heavy stuff. Let me tell you a funny story. And this is, this is kind of goofy illustration from when I was young. But it really takes, it's really, really spot on. When I was in middle school, I, I dated, or, 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 I, when I was in middle school, there was this girl I really liked. And this, this, this girl, uh, well, my parents had a rule that I wasn't allowed to go out with anybody at that, at that age. And so I didn't like that rule. And I really liked this girl. And so there was a school dance. And so I asked her to go to the dance with me. And so I'm dancing with her. And as I look around on the dance floor, I notice that there's a bunch of, uh, uh, looking for kids, make sure this is cool, the, uh, <laughs> bunch of other guys that are dancing that's got their, their hand on the butt of the girl that they're dancing with. And I think, that's cool. <laughs> so I follow suit. Now I'm dancing with my hand on this girl's butt. Little do I know that there's chaperones for this dance, and not just that there are, but they happen to be my parents' like really, really, really good friends. And so I, they don't say anything to me. They just call my parents. And so the next day, my dad comes home from work. He was home from work late. I had actually already fallen asleep. And so they wake me up when my dad had gone home and bring me into their room. And it's, I don't know what time it is, but I'm kind of in the stupor. Um, they just say, I don't know what's going on. And they just really kindly, they're, they're not harsh, but they just say like, Jake, we, the Hogs called us and we know that you were dancing with Lauren and we know you had her hand on her butt. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not kidding. I literally passed out. <laughs> I mean, I did. I just hit the ground. <laughs> when, I, when I came to, my parents just didn't know what to do with that. So they're like, we'll talk to you about it in the morning. So I just able to go, go to sleep. But the next morning, I wake up, and, like, I'm just devastated. I am just, I'm crying. I'm just so upset. And, like, my parents are thinking, man, this guy is really repentant. Like, he, he literally passed out, and now he's crying and all this stuff. And so all is good. Until Tuesday, two days later, I ask Lauren to officially be my girlfriend. Go out with me. And I start dating her, whatever that looks like in middle school, behind my parents' back. Now, when I passed out and when I was crying the next morning, was, was I thinking, I'm going to fake that I'm really upset about this so that they'll leave me alone and I can go do what I want? No. I really was upset. I really was sorrowful. But I was really upset for me. I certainly wasn't upset for what I'd done to God or to my parents or to this girl or whatever. I was just upset for, my, for myself. I didn't want the consequences. I was upset that I got caught. And so did it lead to any kind of life change? No. Two days later, I'm with this girl. Yes, there's, there's a sorrow, there's a grief, there's a repentance that's really motivated out of selfishness. You repent because you don't like the consequences and how it affects you. And there's a completely different thing when you actually acknowledge that your sin has wronged the God that loves you and created you and has wronged others. And it's sorrow over the sin itself 
that then leads to change. I like what Tim Keller says on this. He says, when you repent about not just breaking the rules and how it is messing up your life, but you have broken his heart, you'll find that when you say, my sin is against the goodness of this God, it helps you hate the sin and what you did, not just the consequences of it, which causes you to stop doing it and to change. And you see, the reason you begin vertically with your confession, with your repentance, is because all your sin is ultimately offense to God. And when you do that in light of who God is, that God is your, is, loves you like none other, that is so good to you all the time, when you're in light of his love for you, that the idea of breaking his heart breaks your heart. And it's his kindness, as Romans 12 talks about, it's his kindness, or Romans 2, 4, that talks about, that it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. It leads you to actually change. So that's where he begins. He begins vertically, and then he moves horizontally. And he gets this right, too. He's like against you. I've sinned to the Father. He does, there's no uh, uh, blame shifting. There's no excuses. It's not like, hey, look, look, if you had my brother, then you would understand. Like, I just had to get out of here. He's always judging me and all this stuff. I just had to. But he doesn't say that. He just says, against you, I've sinned. And like, that's two, that, guys, those are the three huge elements of repentance. It, it, it begins by coming to your senses. And when you're brought to your senses, you respond. And when you respond, you repent vertically and then horizontally to the Father and to who you've, who you've wronged. So that's what it is. But it still doesn't get to the issue of why it's so hard to do. And so let me talk a bit for a second about what the key to repentance, actually, actually being a repentant person, what the key is. Because the, what, and what you see in this passage is, is that you learn this from not what the son actually does, but what the father doesn't allow him to do. See, because what the son does is that he's motivated, he comes to his senses, and he's got his speech ready, and he's going to say, you know, against heaven I've sinned, against you I've sinned, and then like, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Make me as your hired hand. Make, you, make me as a hired servant. And what's interesting is that on this, a hired servant or hired hand is someone that was different than like someone who lived at the place where they were uh, a servant and just lived off of the master's stuff and all that stuff. A hired hand is someone who actually lived in the village, would come into the, the place to work, get paid a day wage and go back. And the son is saying, hey, what I want to do is I want to be a hired hand. Like, I'm going to go find a place to live in the village. I'm going to come work for you every day, dad, father, so that I can pay my way back in. I've taken all of this money. I've taken my inheritance. I've squandered it off. I want to pay you back. And so he comes back to the father. And as he's walking to the father, what, is his, what happens? His father sees him, right? Long distance, really far off. Father runs to the son. And the guys, like just a little bit more context here, like Middle Eastern patriarchs, they don't run. Like they're, run, they're wearing skirts. And to run while wearing skirts, you have to like lift them up and show your legs a little bit. Like that's not happening with Middle Eastern patriarchs. Like just, it's, it's contextually, it just never happens. Little boys run, little girls run, women would run, men would not run. In fact, also, there's a sign of superior here, superiority, that the patriarch, would, the one who's most superior in the conversation, they would stand put. And the in, inferior person would come to them. But you see the complete opposite here. And Jesus is telling the story to give us this incredible picture in the heart of God that he sees the son far distance off and runs 
to him. And he actually throws himself around him. And the, the Greek actually is that he, he would uh, 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 threw himself at his neck. And then he embraces the son and he kisses him. And he says, you know, all this stuff like it's the, the robe and the ring, the fatted calf, the party. The son, if you, realize, if you recognize, like when he, he had this speech ready, he rehearsed it. Against you, father, I mean, against heaven I've sinned, against you, father I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then one other part, make me like a hired hand. That's his rehearsed speech. But when he gets to the father, or the father actually gets to him, he says all of that except for the part about make me like your hired hand. Why? Because the father wouldn't let him even get there. If you go with the analogy that I said at the beginning, this really goofy analogy about repentance being the fuse to the dynamite that explodes God's love into our life, that whole deal, what's really interesting to note is that the Father's love here was ever-present. The Father had never, never stopped loving the Son. And that when the, father, when the Son begins his way back home, the Father runs to him, you see in it that the Father's love is actually the spark. It's the light that lights the fuse. His love is the light that lights the fuse that explodes his love fully in our life. Like if you want to go for the whole analogy here. And what I mean by that is that God's love leads us to repentance. And then when we repent, we experience to a greater, greater fuller extent ever than ever before God's love. That it's all about his love. It's really, really Amazing and powerful. Through that, the, what I want to draw out there is that what makes repentance so hard to do for us is that oftentimes we relate to God so differently. We relate like we need to be a hired hand. People often refer to this as, as religion. That when we think about religion, we think about what, what hoops do I need to jump through in order for God to accept me or to bless me? What do I need to do? What do I need to not do in order to get God's love? And if that is how we function with our relation with God and even our relationship with others, that if the way that other people are going to accept me and like me is if I do the right things and not do the wrong things, and so I have their respect and that kind of stuff, then my hope and my confidence... Your hope and your confidence, your joy, your identity is based on your record. It's based on what you're doing or not doing. And if that's the case, then repenting feels horrible. It feels life-taking. Because to repent is to admit that you don't have a perfect record. And if that's where your hope and your love, like your life, your, your joy, your, your, your confidence, your identity is found in your record, to say that my record isn't as flawless as I want it to be in your eyes or in others' eyes feels, again, it feels like it just drains you. It feels like it rocks you. It feels like it devastates you. And then what we do is we get in this vicious circle, cycle, if you will, where if we mess up and we have to admit that we messed up, then what we want to do is we want to beat ourselves up about it, don't we? 
Because if I can beat myself up about what I've done wrong enough, then perhaps in the eyes of God, in the eyes of people, and even in the eyes of myself, I can convince everybody that's looking in that I really am a good person because only a good person would really beat themselves up this much to this extent over something wrong that they've done. And if you beat yourself up enough, then perhaps you can be accepted again by God and even accept yourself and then again have your confidence restored in your perfect record or your good enough record. But where do you know that you, when, how do you know you beat yourself up enough? And so we avoid repentance because it, it, it disconnects us from our source of, of power and confidence and, and hope and identity. And because even if I were to admit that I've messed up, then how would I know that I could ever regain that back? How would I ever have done enough to beat myself enough to get that back? So we avoid it. We don't want to do it. Because here's where the Father's love is so powerful. Is that as a Christian, as someone who believes the gospel, and what we believe is that we're accepted not based off of our record but off of Jesus's. That what we believe, what the gospel tells us is that we, none of us had a good enough record, but that God in his great love for us sent his son to die for us on our behalf, to, to live the life, the perfect life, to have the perfect record that we have all failed to keep, and then to die in our place for our messed up records, and then to give us his righteousness that we would be in Christ, that we could have his record. And so when we repent, what we're doing as Christians is we're just being reminded that we're sinners in need of grace. And we're able to do that because we have received it. And we could say, I don't have my hope. It isn't in my record. It's in Christ's record. So let me admit when I've done wrong and let me have confidence at the same time because I have Jesus' record. And so the Father will always accept me and always love me because of what he's done for me. I think it's amazing that Jesus tells this story. And in in this story, what you have, let me just read this. He tells the story of a son who is in agony, in rags, crying out to the Father, and the Father opens the door and welcomes him and clothes him and feasts him. But in the end of Jesus' life, he's on the cross, and he's in agony, and he's stripped naked, and he cries out to the Father, and the door is shut. And he is not robed, he is disrobed, and he is not feasted, but he gets vinegar to drink. And some people use repentance to make themselves miserable and atone for their sin, but gospel-believing Christians understand that Jesus, on the cross, was miserable for us. That he was stripped naked for us so that we could be clothed in God's love. He was rejected for us so that we could get the welcome of God. And so we can repent. And here's what will happen. If we as a community, as individuals and as a community would embrace the gospel and we would become repentant people, then we would have an incredibly awesome community, would we not? 
that if we get that repentance begins by coming to your senses, then we would recognize our need for one another. And we would say, like, I'm not going to go to church by just coming on a Sunday and being here and then leaving. But we'd say, I actually need people in my life who know me, who really know me, who can see the things that I can't even see about myself, the things that I'm blind to that can help wake me up, who can help bring me to my senses. I need that. And so I'm going to be in real community. I'm going to really be with people who really know me. And then we've all that idea of people like pointing out flaws in us and stuff like that. Like we push back on that. We've all had horrible situations of that, right? But what if we are a gospel community that everyone functions knowing that we are all sinners in need of grace? And so when we're pointing out where others need to grow in and change in and repent of, we're also ready for people to do the same for us. And the way we go about it is gentle and loving. We're not out there just judging everyone, trying to condemn people. We're doing it out of love and in love because we're sinners as well that need a Savior. And because we know that the best thing that we can have for one another is to find our confidence and our hope and our joy and our identity in Jesus' record and not our own, we're constantly pointing each other to Jesus and saying, here's where your hope is. Here's where your confidence is. Guys, what if we're that that kind of community? That'd be awesome, right? Right? Jesus can do that here. He can do it in your life, and he can do it amongst us, friends, and he can do it beyond these walls. The gospel is powerful. Our God is good. Let us become a repentant people. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do ask that you would do that, that you would make us a repentant people, that we would be willing to quickly admit when we have done wrong, that we would admit it in front of you and in front of others, and we would do it boldly and courageously and not fearing the loss of power or confidence or hope or joy, but God, that in the repenting, we would be reminded of where our hope, our confidence, our love, our joy, our power is found. And the one and only Jesus that died on the cross for our sins that have given us his perfect record. And God, may we love each other enough to be in each other's lives, and to be pointing each other to you. God, we want to just reflect on how great you are uh, even more now. So I pray this time of worship would be uh, honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.